Hi everyone and welcome to the FFS show, a podcast about misinformation and fact checking by the ferret. I am your always here host, Ali Bryan. Last time Sam left us for the final time, but replacing him is somebody who is also called Ali, Ali Tibbet. How are you doing, Ali? I'm very well, thanks, Al. This is going to get confusing, isn't it? It is going to get a bit confusing. Not everyone at the ferret is called Al, um, although probably from a distance you both look quite similar. <laughs> um, um, how are you doing? How, are you excited to be part of this podcast experience? I am, I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this podcast experience, mainly because I think the two Al's on the podcast mm. is a kind of thing that we should exploit, or we should have exploited earlier, and, yeah. and now we're doing it, and it feels like we're writing a wrong. Um, so could you explain just to the listeners, for the tiny fraction of people who don't know who you are based on your reputation, could you explain uh, who you are, what you do at The Ferret, and what you do generally? I am one of the co-founding directors of The Ferret. I work one day a week for The Ferret, generally um, making sure the website doesn't fall over most of the time, mm. uh, and uh, sometimes get to write stories. And the rest of the time, I work for Open Democracy doing um, similar things over on that website too. So, um, yeah, I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. You're good underplaying your journalistic abilities. Uh, Open Democracy also where um, our other founder, first of all founder, um, Peter Gagan ended up. Yeah. Um, so it's a sort of like finishing school for people who start at the ferret. Something like that. I'm not sure everybody at the ferret would see it that way. But No, maybe not. We can, we can cut that out if that's not agreeable. <laughs> um, so in this week's podcast, we have a couple of things that we're going to look into. We're going to—I'm going to be talking to the uh, energy and uh, class and everything expert Fraser Stewart about the energy bills crisis. What can be done about it? And what what caused it? And what sort of safeguards could be in place? That is later on. But first, me and Aoi are going to talk about a rather controversial fact check that was done um, for the fair a couple of weeks ago about an independent Scotland's ability to pay for pensions. Yeah, this got a lot of debate, didn't it? It did get a lot of debate. That's, you know, that's good. I suppose that uh, shows engagement is high and people are reading our stuff. Yeah. And so what was the crux of the claim? So the claim came from a, a, a visual graphic that um, was tweeted out and was shared about. And it basically said that your pension is safe after a Scottish independence referendum. It compared the amount that people in Scotland pay in national insurance payments, 11.5 billion, to how much the pension bill is for people in Scotland, 8.5 billion, and used those two contrasting figures and the fact that basically the national insurance payments were higher than the pension bill to say that Scotland can more than afford to pay state pensions and independence will just cut out the middleman. And on the face of it, that seems to be maybe a reasonable argument, right? So more money goes into Westminster and a yeah. smaller amount of money goes to pensions. So fine. The, the figures, as we uh, say in the claim, the, fig- the, the 11.5 in national insurance uh, receipts that come from Scotland and the 8.5 Scottish uh, pension bill, those two figures are broadly correct. Yeah. So what's the problem? Al? <laughs> well, the, pro- the problem is that while national insurance is, is probably best known for being a tax that helps to cover the, uh, the pension bill, it's not all that national insurance pays for. So I think there's a few kind of layers to this. Firstly, that UK taxes aren't, they're not what's known as uh, hypothecated, which means taxes are not usually 
raised specifically to pay for specific services. Instead, like all taxes go into a pool, and then that pool is used to pay for for different spending requirements as well, you know, as well as other web revenue streams. That the largest share of national insurance contributions are used to pay for the state pension. That's true, but they're also used to pay for quite a lot of other things. This is one of the key things, isn't it? So what after we published our fact check mm. and we said you can't just look at national insurance in and pensions out and say everything's fine because national yep. insurance gets used for other stuff. We had some feedback from the person who kind of inspired the meme, didn't we? Yeah. He basically said that um, because money is taken off the money paid by national insurance in Scotland to go to mm. the English NHS. Sorry, reader, listeners, even you're going to have to stick with us while this gets a little bit technical. <laughs> yeah. The argument was uh, national insurance, national insurance payments from Scotland are top sliced for the English NHS, amongst other things. And therefore, that's money that goes to England that doesn't come back to Scotland. Uh, yeah. And uh, if we stop sending money to Westminster and just kept money in Scotland, we wouldn't have to fund the English NHS. Now, uh, you looked into that because you basically went off and we decided that the best way to resolve this one would be to contact the Scotland office, didn't we? Yeah, so we were fairly confident in our research, we should say. The major other thing that the national insurance contributions do cover is the NHS. Obviously, the way that Scotland's NHS is funded and the way that um, England's NHS is funded, they're funded separately, but they're linked together by the Barnett formula. Just to explain the Barnett formula in basic terms is that any changes in funding to services in the UK has a knock-on effect to services in Scotland. It's usually done proportionally by population size. It's complicated by how devolved each service is and how much raising and tax spending is done in the individual country. But to, sim- to break it down simply, when money is spent in the NHS in England, there's a knock-on effect for the NHS in Scotland. Well, it's not that simple, Al, because there's a knock-on effect for the Barnet consequentials. So what happens is money goes to the English NHS. It triggers a Barnet payment to the Scottish government, roughly yep. a tenth of it, because it's 100%. Health is 100% devolved. Yep. The Scottish government gets a lump of cash as a consequence of that extra spending in England, but it doesn't have to spend it on the NHS in Scotland, right? That's true, but but the Scottish government has committed to doing so. Okay, so so, so there we are. That's a very good point. That, that And as I was saying, I was thinking that you're probably going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> so so we were kind of pretty sure that was what was happening anyway mm. before when we were writing the fact check because we discussed this. And then we thought we'd better check when people got in touch to say yeah, but sort of triple that, check triple check so the scotland office confirmed that the money which comes off the english nhs is barnetable for want of a less hideous expression yep and um that means the scottish government gets a big lump of money and actually when you include the barnet consequential that the scottish government gets it breaks the whole argument of the meme doesn't it when you do the math yeah another thing that is worth mentioning is that the national insurance fund which is the money that is then sort of broadly used to um, pay for a pension stuff money for the nhs the nhs allocation actually comes off before it reaches the fund so that's a kind of very specific bit of money that's based on specific calculation that's in law yeah again it's worth saying that while these things are often referred to as such taxes are not strictly hypothecated so they could be spent from other spent from other things yeah the the bottom line is is it not really that you know the money that Scotland pays in national insurance um, is, and, and compared to the money that it gets back from Westminster is 
there's actually more money coming back from Westminster than we pay in national insurance. The bigger meta point, of course, is that, you know, you can't just look at one tax in isolation, as you say, because nothing's yeah. hypothecated anyway. And you have to look at the entire Scottish government budget, compared, you know, all the all the money coming out and all the money coming in. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really important to mention that we weren't at any point saying that Scotland couldn't afford to pay pension after independence. That's something we can't fact check. We don't fact check the future. We don't fact check how Scotland's economy is going to be ordered, in what way they're going to pay for pensions. It's not for us to say how these things will be funded and how successfully they'll be funded. Well, nobody, nobody, can, nobody can know, right? Nobody can nobody know. Can know. No. And anybody who claims to be sure of that point is misleading you, I would say. And I think, I suppose we, we owe um, Indy Poster Boy a little bit of a mea culpa as well, don't we? And we should explain our, our, our thinking. So to everybody else, because there were people on the various Twitter threads who wanted to hear from the ferret about this particular thing. And, uh, you know, in our methodology for fact checks, we say that we will go to the people who we fact check and we'll ask Mm -hmm. them for evidence before we publish it. In this particular case, we decided not to. Um, But we did discuss it beforehand and we decided not to. Can you explain why we did that? Yeah, it's in our our methodology that we will will contact people, the person who's making the claim to give them right, right of reply and also let them provide evidence. This is something we don't do with a lot of things that are just like unattributed memes. If someone just shares a bit of information that they've just seen um, on the internet ether, they've seen from, you know, it's been um, gone through various different formats and been changed and then turned into a meme that's then become shareable. We don't credit them as the claimant because we don't, we're not looking to bring undue attention onto just normal people who are sharing information completely innocently that might be incorrect. When we're uh, going towards targets who are big high profile people so we're talking about you know politicians press groups very notable figures notable groups who have a a significant influence it's them that we're looking to say no you have to change this but a lot of the things we fact check and just given the nature of how the information ecosystem works online a lot of things are not attributed they don't come from like necessarily a particularly clear high profile source they come more from just some page shared it some other page shared it some other page shared it in this case i think with Indie Poster Boy, he did have more of a platform and was more associated with the meme than we first realized. And so when, when the thing came out, he was being directly sort of tagged as the person who came up with it. And so he should have been given a right reply before it went out. And basically, I mean, yeah, we just don't want to punch down. Exactly. Yeah. If, if people if people are high profile people, as you say, then then we we quite happy to name them. But we're kind of conscious that we don't want people to get picked on. Now it's time for my interview with Fraser Stewart. He is officially the Energy Justice and Just Transition Lead for the energy nonprofit Regen. And we chat all about the current energy bills crisis, uh, how it is affecting people in the UK, and how it could be solved. The average energy bill for households is projected to rise above £4,000. We've had a rise of, we're getting towards thousands of pounds of rises in the last year. How did we get into this situation? There have been a few things that have come together. I think the first thing I'll say is how utterly scandalous is it that we're, we're in this spot now? Hmm. I remembered, so I, alongside the work that I do with, with Regen, I sit on the Scottish Government's Fuel Poverty Advisory Panel. Yeah. And I remember last year in the autumn, 
we were worried because bills were about to go over a thousand pounds up to the region mm-hmm. of 1200 pounds for us that was catastrophic we're now talking about four four and a half five thousand pounds this time next year if some estimates are, are to be believed which is which is ludicrous it's really really ludicrous and and it's scary the scale of the crisis but we're into this mess for one massive massive reason in particular there have been a bit of a cocktail of things over the years in terms of the way that the uk energy system is set up that makes it not uniquely exposed to this, but specifically exposed to it. But mm-hmm. the big reason we're in this mess is the cost of gas. There is no other real driver to this. It is the price of gas has has shot up, or rather has been put up by gas uh, gas providers um, over the last year in particular. They have been rising slightly before as a result of a kind of COVID bounce back in terms of the, yeah. the demand um, shot up again when we were all, all relaxing out of lockdown and stuff. Um, so that was part of the instigation uh, to begin with, but ultimately the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been the flashpoint for rising gas prices. Now, there has been an issue, somewhat of an issue with Russia supply in Europe in that it's not supply in Europe at the, the scale that it typically would, but yeah. the prices have gone up. I think it's important to bear in mind it's not been a natural natural result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's been put up by people who have the taps, who who control uh, how yeah. much supply is given and what the cost of that supply is. So it has been an active decision, quite a cynical one, to capitalize on the invasion in Ukraine and the other sort of supply issues, uh, which has led specifically to the rising costs that we see today. My understanding is that the UK doesn't import a huge amount of its gas from Russia directly. So why is the UK suffering so much from this it doesn't import a huge amount from russia specifically we do still import quite a lot from europe more broadly mm. we're very reliant on our interconnectors across to europe specifically and um, but we are way behind on where we should be largely in terms of our renewable energy transition so we are extremely right. reliant on gas um, we are extremely connected to the international market. We depend on it massively for, for our supply, which means that when something like this happens, we are extremely highly exposed to the worst effects of it. And then within the country, the, the those on lowest incomes, those least well-placed to deal with shocks like this, naturally more exposed still than, than the rest of us. So it's very much down to our inaction on renewable mm. transition, inaction on energy demand and energy efficiency. So that's insulating your houses, that's stopping people using as much energy in the first place, um, and massively relying on that international gas market for our for our supply. What other safeguards could have been put in place or should have been put in place? The invasion of Ukraine, I mean, it's not unpredictable, but it's uh, it's not like 100% factorable into plans. But we're talking about an issue that's predates this what could have been put in place before now the big big miss was energy efficiency it started under the coalition half-heartedly for two three four years maybe at best and then they absolutely killed the funding um about midway well not about midway through the coalition in 2015 when cameron comes back in the tory government comes in on their own funding for energy efficiency gets killed there are estimates in the dozens of billions that we could be saving on energy bills today had we followed through with energy efficiency so that is just for for anyone who who isn't fully clued up on it it sounds like the least sexy thing on the planet but that's your Mm. double glazing that's your insulation in your loft and your floor and your walls it's making your your house need to use less energy so you save money on your bills broadly speaking 
the cheapest energy, this is the saying in the, in, the, in the sector, the cheapest energy is the energy that you don't use. But the securest energy is the energy that you don't have to use as well. So the less energy you need, the less reliant you are on energy supply, the less exposed you are to shocks like this. What role, well, what role do green levies have in increasing bills? And also, how much, how much of this do you see as being part of the current Tory leadership play? So... First, first things first, and really important to clarify this and make sure that everyone knows where this stands. The green levy is not the reason that your bills have gone up. It has not contributed one penny to your bills going up in the last year. It's entirely down to the cost of gas. Green levies were roughly worth about 13% of your, of your overall dual fuel energy bill this time last year. They are now worth about 4%, £153 per year on your bill. That hasn't changed. That is not something that's that's changing, that's growing, that's not contributing to the cost of your bill going up. In contrast to that, the wholesale costs of gas were formerly low 30%, there or thereabouts. This time in October will be worth near enough 60% of your total bill. All of the rise yeah. is down to the increasing cost of gas and some of the sort of network and operation costs associated with that. So some of the more sort of infrastructure-based costs designed to, to deal with to deal with this, this reliance, the crisis that we're having. So green levies are nothing to do with it. In fact, when we say green levies, it's a real misnomer because what we really mean are the warm homes discount, which puts money into most vulnerable people's bank accounts every winter to people who are in fuel poverty, to help them deal with, with their bills through the winter. It goes to ECO, the ECO scheme, which is uh, run by suppliers, which is basically a, an insulation scheme, again, for lowest income, sort of most at-risk uh, households. The green stuff that it goes to, some of the renewables infrastructure, some of the development around that, is actually a relatively small proportion versus what the, the popular narrative seems to be, right? When we say green levies, you instantly think, oh, well, we're just paying for middle-class people to, to have their fucking electric vehicles. That's generally speaking not where it's not where it's going to. Yeah. So it does a lot of a lot, a lot of work for lowest income households. So scrapping the green levies, as we're arguing just now, will knock £153 off energy bills every year. Energy bills that are now at £4,000. So it's barely scratching, barely scratching the surface. The only way to deal with this is to control that wholesale gas cost and the, the wider crisis around it. The reason that we're talking about that at all is because Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are under pressure again from their back benches to, yeah. to, to go for this, the green levies thing, to play to the, to the right wing gallery, um, to, to scrap those green levies and maybe tinker around the edges of VAT. The reality is that the overwhelming rise in prices is down to the cost of wholesale gas. And if you don't get on top of that, nothing you do is going to help whatsoever. I think part of the conversation and part of what I think people find really difficult to square is well, probably three things. One, energy bills going up massively. Two, energy company profits going up massively. And three, the amount we're often told about how much renewable generation is produced, particularly in Scotland. How do those three, three things stack up? So if Scotland is producing so much renewable, so many renewables, so so much generation through renewables, why are costs going up and why are we so still so reliant on gas? So there are a few reasons for it. The first one, of course, is that uh, Scotland was still part of the, the UK or the GB, as they would say, uh, energy energy system and energy market. Mm -hmm. So we're still pulled together as one system. So while Scotland's horsing on ahead with, with renewables, we're still pulling and sharing across the, across the UK on the energy system. 
Yeah. Um, which means that we're still we're still very much in terms of proportion of of renewables still within that that bigger mix. It's also the case that we're providing a lot of our electricity in Scotland from renewables, but we're still very reliant on gas for our heating. Yeah. We're still very reliant on petrol and diesel for our transport. So we have we have a whole lot of sort of fossil fuel based energy. Um, in fact, the vast majority, you're still talking 65, 70% of our energy mm -hmm. is still fossil fuel based. So we're, we're tethered to that, even though our electricity is, is in, some, in some days, 90, 96% renewable. Yeah. The other side of it is the very boring and niche way that your energy bills are calculated or that energy prices rather are, are, are settled. So when, you, when we sort of settle the, the price of energy, you have your supply coming in, you have gas. You are charged effectively for the, the cheapest unit of, of energy that's available at that time. That is then tethered to, to the price sort of internationally. So even when you have really cheap renewables generated, you only get the price of the lowest available sort of wider supply, average supply. So we're tethered to the price of gas as, yeah. we, as we draw down our, our energy. This is a really poor definition of it. But as we draw down our energy from the, the international market, from the wider supply, the renewables and the gas price aren't different. They're tethered together. So you might get cheaper renewables at the, at the, the base when, when they're available, but they're still yeah. very much dictated by the wider, the wider price of gas. So one of the, one of the solutions to this that, that off-gen base, some of the UK government have, have suggested, and far wider groups of people than that have suggested, is that you figure out a mechanism to decouple those effectively. Yeah. So you get a renewable price, you get a fossil fuel price or a gas price. That is probably technically a tricky sort of complex thing to do in practice, but actually a very, very neat and simple solution. So that if you're someone who's signed up to an electricity company who say we're 100% renewable, yet your prices are still shot up, if you've mm -hmm. subscribed to that renewable electricity company, in theory, that should mean that you get that, that, that cheaper bill. That yeah. then incentivizes all the other companies to go more renewable as well, right? Because they can, they can bring in more customers who want to buy the cheaper renewable energy, speeds yeah. up the acceleration of, of renewables, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a combination of those things, being part of the sort of wider pooling and sharing within the UK energy system, having the, a big part of our heat and transport still reliant on fossil fuels, and also renewables aren't separate in terms of how they're priced on the energy market, which means we're still stuck tethered to, to the gas price, which is dictating everything at the moment. That's all we've got time for for this podcast. Thank you to Fraser again for being a great interviewee. And thanks to my co-host, Aoi. Um, it's been like it's looking it's in a, a mirror. Pleasure, Al. Pleasure, Al. I hope we can do this again, Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll certainly be back on. And uh, is there anything you want to, as um, Guru of the Ferrets um, website and engagement and everything, uh, to point people to? We have just switched around the site where we ask people to send uh ideas and fact checks so um yeah. we have a community forum uh, at the easily remembered url of community.theferret.scot and if you go there there is uh, a big thread where people can submit ideas and vote mm. on them and comment on them uh so if you spot memes or things that you think should be fact checked anybody can sign up there you don't need a fair account it's free yeah uh and please do just Add your thoughts in there. And I don't know, maybe maybe there's a community of fact checkers that's ready to build there. 
Yeah, definitely. Remember, you can get in contact with FFS directly at factcheck at theferret.scot. And if you want to find us on our various socials, they'll all be displayed perfectly if you go to socials.theferret.scot. Thanks again, Ali, for helping me out today. And no doubt you'll be back. We're looking to go with a constantly spinning carousel of different co-hosts on this podcast from now on. It's going to be dizzying, a dizzying selection of excellent journalists. But you, you can only come on if you're called Al, though. Yeah, yeah. Journalist called Al. That's, 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 apart from that, it's going to be ever-changing and exciting. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.